Well, good morning. Welcome to the Imparting Podcast. We are delighted to have you with us this morning. Actually, this morning, we are at Metro Bible Church during our equipping hour. Metro Bible is uh, where I pastor in uh, South Lake, Texas, just north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we have a special guest this morning, Daryl Harrison of the Just Thinking Podcast. Daryl, good to have you here. Good to be here, bud. So he flew in from California the other night and has graciously offered to give us some time and uh, equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And uh, we're going to talk about um, wokeness today, right, Daryl? Yep. There's a lot of terms that are involved with that term, wokeness. You want to run a few by me? Social justice? Yeah, so social justice, you know, before, let's, let me take a couple steps back first and yeah. say that, uh, and we're going to talk more about this as this uh, discussion. Where did all this stuff come from? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a loaded question be, because with the whole idea of social justice in the gospel, you have various points of input that come into this, this whole worldview, and it is a worldview. Um, uh, social justice can be divided from liberation theology, which can be divided from critical race theory, which can be divided from, and you can go on and on. It's like reducing a fraction to its least common denominator. Um, but when you, let, let's start with the social gospel. So let's start with the social gospel. So the social gospel actually has its roots in Roman Catholicism in Latin America, the early, early 20th century. So you're going back mid, you know, 1915, 1920s up through the 1960s. Um, so that effort was born out of a desire for the Roman Catholic church to get more involved in helping the poor helping uh, impoverished individuals in Latin America. So you can trace the origins of the social gospel or the social justice movement back to the early 20th century. Uh, liberation theology, which is, uh, and, and I like to consider these worldviews as uh, generational. Th think of your own family, for instance. We all uh, are, uh, uh, we all represent uh, past generations of, of our families. These worldviews are generational. And what I mean by that is that one worldview gives birth to another, which gives birth to another, which gives birth to another. Uh, so when you hear me talk about the social gospel, liberation theology, these are all generational worldviews. So you have the social gospel. Then out of that came the idea of liberation theology. So liberation theology is sort of, is, is a term that sort of uh, encapsulizes Oh, you'll keep that one? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so uh, liberation theology is, uh, it is a theology, number one. It is a theology. But what liberation theology does is sort of takes the social gospel and magnifies it to, uh, to the extent that it argues that good works, especially the church being involved in good works to create a more equitable society is what full-orbed, salvation in Christ looks like. So liberation theology argues that the atonement on the cross is not enough. And so right, right there, if someone was to ask, are we just taking a, a, a tertiary preferential idea and elevating it? Are, are we making too much out of this? What I hear you saying is right off the bat is, you know, this is an attack upon the gospel right. itself, this on is, the atonement. This is an entirely different gospel. Okay. Okay, this is an entirely different gospel. This is why liberation theology is heretical. Because when you look at the gospel, it's really interesting what, what, what liberation theology argues 
with respect to the church being involved to uh, uh, help the poor, help those who are hungry, help the homeless, help the less fortunate, help the needy, as if that's something new. Now, the, the gospel already tells us, okay, however, the difference between the biblical gospel and liberation theology is liberation theology says, well, we need to do the, these works for the sake of the works, the gospel teaches that these are works that come after repentance. The works flow out of a regenerated heart that has confessed faith in Christ. So biblically, there are predecessor things that have to happen, whereas liberation theology says, no, get out there in the, in the culture, get out there in the society, do these works, and then they get to name what those works are. Okay. But we should know as believers, and I'm going to go go ahead and I shouldn't do this. I have a, I have a, I have a life rule, Rod, not to rule. Life rule number one is never make assumptions. But I'm going to go ahead and assume that most of the folks sitting here listening to us are, are believers. Um, um, as as believers, then we ought to know that works salvation. The fact that the fact that you you have confessed faith in Christ and that you are a believer that tells you right there that your works were not sufficient. Amen. To yeah. save you. <laughs> but liberation theology sees the opposite. So, yeah, yeah, if you really want to experience in society, see, the emphasis of liberation theology is in making this world, uh, bringing, bringing heaven to earth, is making this world better, make, bringing heaven on earth. We're going to usher in the kingdom ourselves. Right. We're yeah. going to usher in the, the kingdom ourselves. But see, the kingdom that liberation theology preaches doesn't look anything like the kingdom we see in, in the book of Revelation, for example. So liberation art, art theology argues for the works themselves, but we know as believers that, well, if that were even possible, then there would have been no need for Christ to have come and then afterwards to die. So this is, this is where you have guys like Ibram X. Kendi, um, who is probably the foremost liberation the theologian out there. I'm going to quote him later on, uh, who are emphasizing works. So you have the social gospel, liberation theology. Now you have critical race theory, critical theory. Let's start with critical theory. Again, this critical race theory is a, is a, is a child of critical theory. So we have to start with critical theory. Critical theory can be traced back to uh, Nazi Germany, actually, the 1930s. This was prior to the Nazi takeover, however. Early 1930s, a German... Argentine Jew by the name of Max Horkheimer. Max Horkheimer founded what is known as the Frankfurt School. Max Horkheimer was a Jewish Marxist. He founded the Frankfurt School, which was formerly called critical theory. So if you really, if you hear the Frankfurt School, think critical theory, because the, the school, the formal name of the, of the school was critical theory. It, it, took on the name the Frankfurt School because it was located in Frankfurt, Germany. But the proper name for it is critical theory. Um, Horkheimer founded critical theory in uh, uh, 1937. He coined the term critical theory in 1937 uh, to help develop Marxist doctrine in Germany. Um, Later on, uh, uh, there, 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 another German Jew uh, by the name of Frank Weil, the last name is W-E-I-L, 
funded what was called the Institute for Social Research, which is where critical theory was formally taught. When the Nazis came into power, they shut the Institute down. Now, if you want to know how bad Marxism was, when you have the Nazis shut down your Marxist school, that should tell you something. But what did the Institute do? After it shut down in Frankfurt, it packed its bags and moved to Columbia University in New York. Mm -hmm. So that's how critical theory, theory came to be implanted in New York. So critical theory, there's, so there, understand there's, there's CT, okay, there's critical theory. Then the child of critical theory is critical race theory. And this all finds its roots in Marx and Engels. And Marx, uh, uh, Karl Marx and uh, Jonathan Engels and then Frederick Hegel, uh, um, Michel Foucault, you, you, you could go on and on and on. So it started as sort of economic class warfare. Marxism. Economic class warfare, oppressor versus oppressed. It morphs uh, into critical theory. Morphs into critical theory. And then we have critical, we have race, critical theory. race theory. Now, so what's critical race theory? So now critical, we've gone from the 30s now into the 60s, and now we're into the 70s, or critical race theory, 70s and 80s. Critical race theory began when a group of Marxist legal scholars got together at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, to talk about how we can apply the precepts and tenets of critical theory to uh, uh, legal historical legal jurisprudence in America, particularly as it relates to certain classes of people, primarily black people, hence the word race in the middle. Uh, so in the, this is an outgrowth of a 70s, of a 1980s movement, which grew out of a movement in the 1970s called Creative Critical Legal Studies. So you have CT with critical theory. Then in the 70s, you have critical legal studies, which gave birth to critical race theory in the, in the 80s. So critical race theory, I define it this way. Critical race theory is a presuppositional worldview. That's what you need to understand. Critical race theory, number one, it doesn't mean critical. We'll go get it in a second. Critical doesn't mean analytical. Okay. What critical race theory does is it looks at already adjudicated legal uh, uh, cases in American history, even in those instances where the rulings, even on up to the Sup Supreme Court, these rulings actually favored uh, equality for black people. But they take that and they, they ex explicate out of that a presupposition that the social climate that gave uh, that, that fed these legal situations is still the case today. So they presuppose a cause in order to produce a, 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 a systemic result. Result. Right. Yeah. A like, systemic reality. Yeah. Th th this, this happened <clears throat> this way because this is what's going on behind the scenes. Right. Okay. So if you remember nothing else about critical, theory, uh, critical race theory, understand that critical race theory is a presuppositional worldview. It presupposes. Uh, so it, 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 it uh, inculcates into its uh, um, apologetic, into its rationale, into its thesis, presuppositions that don't need to be qualified. They say, well, this is how it was then. 
This is how it is now. They don't have to prove it. Critical theories don't have to prove it. By the way, speaking of critical theories, if you hear me use the word crits, C-R-I-T-S, this is how crit, critical race theorists refer to themselves. They refer to themselves as crits. So if you hear me use that term, that's what that means. A critical race theorist, a proponent of critical race theory is a crit by short. It's not a gang term or anything like that. It's just <laughs> how they refer to themselves. Um, so yeah, critical race theory presupposes various uh, uh, facts that aren't facts because they don't have to qualify them. Uh, and this all goes back to the classes of uh, oppressed and oppressor. Oppressed, oppressed, this is classic Marxism. This is classic fundamental uh, Marxism. It's just take it on a form of let's use it for ethnicity. Bingo. Okay. And so, what you, so that's where it started in the 80s. But now critical race theory has expanded to where now it's not just about races of people or a particular race of people. Critical race theory is, is now intersectional. It is intersectional. So where now you not only have race theory, you have gender theory, you have queer theory, you have uh, 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 education theory, you have health theory, uh, and all of these various tentacles of critical race theory are built upon the same presupposition. The system is the banked system. against the victims. The, the system oppressed. is fixed. The system is rigged. Okay. Okay. The system is rigged. Everything is set up uh, to oppress and hold down and marginalize these intersectional groups of people. And it's all your fault, white people. It's all your fault. So, though you had, n number one, the presuppositions are incorrect. They're presuppositions. But what's happening is you have a small group of crits who have these really loud bullhorns. Called the media. Called the media. I was about to say the <laughs> loudest bullhorn is the media. So it's not that this is a worldview that's uh, generally accepted in America. It's just that you have certain people with certain platforms that want you be to believe that that's the case. And as it relates to you who are white, this is where the whole white guilt thing comes in. See, white guilt is the, well, we're not, in, we're in Texas. So you guys still use petroleum and gas and <laughs> California. They're trying to get everybody to drive a, an electric Chevy Volt. Uh, but see, white guilt gives fuel to critical theory and critical race theory. To whatever degree white people take on this whole white guilt thing, that feeds critical race theory. So the more guilty you guys feel about being white, that gives victory. That's how critical race theory wins. But the way you defeat critical race theory is start thinking like a crit. You have to read the critical race theory material. Now, here's, the, here's, the, here's one of the loop. There's many loopholes with critical race theory, but here's, here's one, of the, one of the most uh, devastating ones, damaging one. All, all the way back to Marx, okay, all the way back to critical theory. Critical theory has always been an academic uh, ideology. And when I say academic, I mean at the upper levels of education. 
doctorate level. Yeah, except in revolutions, it has not been popularly received. It hasn't been pop. It hasn't been popular. Hasn't been popularly received except in revolutions. And what happens in revolutions? Even in revolutions, the promises that the elitists who lead the revolution make never come to fruition. Yeah, those who are quote unquote oppressed end up losing out the biggest. Even end up losing out the biggest, which is why you have more revolutions. You see, one revolution follows another, thinking that, okay, the revolutionaries, revolutionaries are going to keep their promises this time. But they never keep their promise. But going back to my point about uh, critical race theory being an academic discipline, what you're going to find in, in reading the material um, uh, that surrounds uh, critical race theory is that it is written by academicians for academicians. Um, the, the podcast that Virgil and I have done uh, on these issues, not just critical race theory, but just social justice in general. We spend a ton of hours researching. We spend money out of our own pocket buying these books and reading them. These books are expensive. Why are they so expensive? Because they're, they're written by academicians for academicians to be taught in the schools. The schools, public schools especially, are the pipe. They've, academ, uh, academia has always been the pipeline for critical theory. But what you're seeing right now here as we sit here in 2021 is that it's no longer at the up, upper echelons of academia. It's at the grade school level now. Yeah. Listen, when you, when, you, uh, when you hear or you read of public schools that, or, or, or even at the federal level, especially with the Department of Education, pushing uh, Heather has two mommies, that's queer theory. Um, or the 16, 1619. Yeah, or the 1619 Project. That's critical race theory. Yeah, well, explain real quickly. What, 1619 Project, have y'all heard of that? Anywhere? Okay, raise your hand if you have not heard about the 1619 Project. Okay, the 1619 Project, what's the, what's the woman's name, Chris, who leads that? Do we, can you look her up real quick? Um, she's in the news lately because she, just get, she, get, she was just denied tenure at the University of North Carolina. Uh, which I thought was a great decision that they made. And this was pushed heavily in the Obama administration. Oh, right? yes, yeah. absolutely. Starting from the top uh, levels and, and, yeah. of the executive branch on down. Don't, don't get me started on the Obama administration. <laughs> <laughs> the 1619 Project is a project ba that basically uh, leverages, uh, let me explain first the, si the significance of it being called 1619 Project. 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia was uh, the year that the first African slave landed on uh, North American soil. Uh, I say North America as distinct from United States or American soil because America didn't become a nation until 1776. But the 1619 Project leverages that historical time in North American history to uh, paint America as being a racist nation for over 400 years. The 1619 Project is rooted in hatred, vengeance, vindictiveness, revenge, not just for America, but for all white people. Now, I've often said, if you've listened to the Just Thinking podcast, you've heard me say that I have studied, apart from the, the topic of theology, I have studied slavery more than any other topic. I have more books in my personal library on slavery than any other topic, with the, with the exception of theology. Now, if you really want to have an honest conversation about slavery in America, you can't start at 1619. You have to go all the way back a couple thousand years. Let's go to Africa. Let's start there. Nicole Harris. 
So Nicole Harris is the woman who was just denied tenure at um, the University of North Carolina. Nicole Harris heads up the 1619 Project. Um, um, do research on the 1619 Project, and you will see how um, just absolutely abhorrent. It teaches you to hate yeah. your nation. Rooted in hatred. And, and it says that basically the United States was started for the purpose of preserving and expounding uh, expanding slavery, right? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so, where was I? You were saying you got to go back. Yeah, you have to go years. back way before 1619. <clears throat> um, when you look at, if you were to look at the transatlantic slave trade from the 1500s all the way through the 1800s, if you were to list uh, the top 15 countries at which slaves, from which slaves were embarked in Africa and then disembarked in other countries, do you know the United States wouldn't even be in the top 20? You know what countries received the most slaves during that period, during that 400-year window? Brazil. Mm -hmm. Brazil. Brazil received almost 4 million slaves. Because they, for all the sugar plantations that were there, On, on, on North American soil, I'll go ahead and use the United States for the sake of conversation. The United States received less than 200,000 over 400 years. But see, this is, this is what the 1619 Project doesn't want you to know. They don't want you to know. So I'll tell anyone, if you want to have an intellectually honest conversation with me about slavery, we can't start at 1619. We have to go way back, a couple thousand years, and then bring it back to the present day, where we present day... Uh, Islamic slavery is still going on. Mm -hmm. Islam enslaved more black people than any white people ever did. Okay. And continue to. And continue to. Yeah. So slavery, I like to say slavery is the sin that will not die. Yeah. It will not die because we won't let it die. So what people like the 1619 Project and, and other crits want you to think, they want you to think that history is repeating itself. They want you to think that people like me, as a black man, uh, have no advantages whatsoever. That I'm, I'm just virtually oppressed. I'm, I'm, I'm oppressed by virtue of my skin color alone. You see. So critical race theory, and we're going to talk about this more when I'm back here in two weeks uh, for the conference. Um, but what I want you to understand at, at this high level is where, where critical race theory has its origins in Marxism going all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, so not long from now, this whole idea is, it will, will have brought 100 years old uh, as an idea. Um, but it's up to you to educate yourselves on what critical race theory is. So how is this... So for the person out there, there that says, um, yeah, I mean, how is this making its way into, into our church? I, I mean... I'm not concerned about it. Maybe, maybe I've homeschooled my kids. We're not concerned about it. I don't feel white guilt. Why is this such a danger to the gospel? Why is our pastor taking so much time to talk about this? And why are we doing a conference? Yeah, Rod, that's, uh, that's many questions. And to tell you the truth, I wish we had time. I wish we had time. Thanks, man. I wish we had time to address each question individually. Mm -hmm. Um, let me let me say this. There's a there's a saying that says, "As the, as goes the pulpit, so goes the church." As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. 
um, you'll know that your church is going woke when you begin to hear the language of wokeness being used from the pulpit, but not only being used from the pulpit, but being used from the pulpit in a way that's affirmative in terms of orthopraxy. And what I mean by that is when you hear your pastor saying, not only talking about wokeness or social justice and saying that and urging you to start going out, if you don't have any black friends, make some black friends. That's what I mean, orthopraxy. Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Then you know your church is going woke. You know your church is going woke. Uh, but in order for you to recognize whether your church is going woke, you have to understand what the language is. If you don't know what the language is, you won't be able to recognize it. See, that term wokeness, that's not some cutesy little catchy, pithy little uh, slang term that they just use in the hood somewhere. This is a whole worldview. It is a multifaceted worldview that hates Christianity. Listen, critical race theory, as much as critical race theory is, remember, Marxism is rooted in a guy who was a Jewish atheist. Mark, Mark, Karl Marx was a Jewish anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about a uh, 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 non sequitur, you would think, how, how can a Jew be an anti-Semite? But he was. He hated himself. He hated his own ethnic roots. Uh, he was a, Marx himself was a lazy, untrustworthy liar. He never paid his debts. He was a bum. He was always feeding off of his mom. Even his mom chastised him because he would never get a job. So now you understand, when you understand Karl Marx and how he lived, who he was as a person, you understand Marxism. Marxism as an ideology, wants everything given to him, wants given to it. What they didn't earn. What they didn't earn. They want what they didn't earn, and they want what you earned. They want what they didn't earn, and they also want what you did earn. Under the premise that you didn't earn it. They, they, op, uh, uh, Marxism, as critical race theory, operates under the premise that you have what you have because you're white. Well, explain that. I, I mean, that's the whole. That's the whole. Because we, we're in South Lake here, which is a very wealthy town, but there's not one person out in this crowd that lives in this area. Yeah, but see, that, that's again. What did I say earlier? I said critical race theory is a presuppositional worldview. Well, one of the presuppositions on, on, under which it operates is that you, being white, are privileged by virtue of being white, and that being white. It's not necessarily that you're wealthy because you're, that, that white people are wealthy. It's just that you are advantaged because you're white. You're more advantaged than I am because you're white. Frederick Douglass uh, said uh, once, he said, you may not get everything you work for in life, but you're going to have to work for everything you get. But whiteness says, no, your whiteness is what gets you what you have. Your whiteness is what gets you advantage. By being white, that's, a, that's so advantageous to you that you guys don't even have to work. We have to struggle. We, as black people, we've always had to struggle, struggle, struggle. That's the word they use, a struggle, 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 struggle. It's just all of woe is me. Oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. 
But that's one of the presuppositions upon which critical, th critical race theory operates. But again, if you don't know the language, you're not going to be able to recognize it when it hits you. You're just going to walk out of some church somewhere and say, oh, that was such a nice sermon. Yeah, we should love one another and go out and let me find a poor zip code. Let me look up a poor zip code. It, it feels compassionate, right? It feels compassionate, but it's it manufactured compassion. Oh, okay, so you said it was manufactured compassion. Right. Because, let's be honest, in the American church, uh, we have become consumers. Yes, unfortunately. And, and, okay, and so there, there is... There is a great sense and a great need and a great goal that we need to do more, serve more, take the gospel to people, and not just take the gospel, but do more. So if I'm a consumer and I hear this, it feels compassionate. I feel compelled to do it. Offer me something biblical. I mean, if this is not, if this, how is this not biblical, this sort of compassion, this Marxist ideology of giving someone or, or taking what's not yours? Well, here's the thing. Marxism and the gospel are disparate in infinite ways. One, however, is that Marxism, again, presuppositional, Marxism and critical race theory and evangelical social justice is rooted under the mirage of equality, material equality. Mm -hmm. Gospel didn't teach that. The gospel doesn't teach that. I'm sorry, guys. This is very simple. The gospel does not teach that. It does not teach that. The Great Commission was not go into every community and... No. No. The gospel is a message of salvation. Fundamentally, the gospel is a message of salvation from your sin. The gospel is a message of how a sinner can be right with a holy God. Okay? That's the gospel. The gospel is not an ism, okay? It is not Marxism reimagined, okay? That's not the gospel. The gospel, as I said at the beginning, the gospel already, already tells us that we are to do works in keeping with repentance. That's the order. There was somewhere in the gospel, uh, Rod, being the theological genius that you are, you may be able to tell me where this is just off the top of your head. But somewhere in the Gospels, there, there, uh, there's a, a passage where Jesus actually curses a city that he went into, and he performed miracles in that city. But before he left, he cursed that city because they didn't believe. So even, not even Jesus, because he was God incarnate. But what we should take from that passage, that even the miracles, we can go into some kind of, any kind of communities we want and work miracles, metaphorically speaking. We can, we can pull in food trucks. We can create jobs. We can uh, house the homeless. We can forgive student loan debt or whatever you want to call that. We can do all that. But not even Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was, was, had a, had a, a um, sort of righteous indignation for these people, because the miracles that Jesus were, were uh, performed were not for the sake of the miracles. They were to validate him as the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Who by faith, who, who lived a sinless life, who kept the whole law perfectly. Mm -hmm. Amen. And here's what you have, though, with these worldviews. They're adding another layer of law. That's really what this is. That's really, they're adding arbitrary man-made restrictions 
or laws to the gospel of grace. Right, the gospel of grace. They're adding works to it. There's this is it's another Jerusalem council, Acts chapter five, uh, where the apostles. So what happens to forgiveness? Well, oh, oh, forgiveness is not even in the nomenclature of uh, of wokeness. But see, see, here's here's the thing about wokeness. Wokeness can't afford to adapt a, um, a theology of forgiveness because once forgiveness is achieved, and they have no reason to exist. That's the end of their gravy train at that point. So wokeness has to continue to preach uh, a gospel, if you will, gospel in air quotes. Wokeness has to continue to preach a gospel of hatred, uh, perpetual sinfulness, uh, perpetual guilt, perpetual uh, penance, perpetual reparation, because if forgiveness were to ever to come into play in all this, then they wouldn't get paid. So, Daryl, this is interesting. I'm looking out here, and I, I see our Latinos, and I see Israel from Africa, and I see folks from India that, that seem to recognize this because they've seen, they've seen the social justice uh, carrot in the banana republics that then turns into a totalitarianism, or, or in Africa, they've seen it, just the abuse of it, or the caste system in India— but we haven't we haven't seen it so much here in the U.S. And so, what about my friends who are genuinely wanting to be compassionate, who are being sucked in by this? Me giving them a bunch of history and stats is not going to sell them. T- tell me relationally how I draw near and don't leave them in their error, but how I can how I can help make a difference with my Christian friends because we're in Dallas for Worth. I told you how many churches are buying into this. And what are your thoughts? This may sound harsh, but if you listen to our podcast, this will not be anything new. Because <laughs> we tell it like it is. Uh, look, comp- compassion is not salvific. Okay. Um, like I said earlier, the gospel already teaches us this stuff. Yeah. John 13, 34. People, people uh, especially in this current milieu, Rod, they want to always bring up Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Let me just say for the sake of transparency, I'm not a fan of Dr. Martin Luther King. I've read his writings. I've read his seminary papers, uh, seminary papers. I've read his sermons. I am not a fan of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King was not a biblical Christian. He denied the inherent deity of Christ. He denied the Trinity. Dr. Tr- Dr. King was a socialist humanist. He was not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to whatever degree God used him uh, uh, in, in the 60s during the civil rights movement, I do not decry any of that. Uh, but I like to tell people, if it hadn't been Dr. King, God would have used somebody else. Uh, but um, go out, if you have an opportunity, go out to the Stanford University website. Stanford University has all of Dr. King's papers online. You can read them for yourselves. Um, but that said, um, people will bring up Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and they will quote him as uh, the, 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 the section where he says, well, you know, I hope one day where my children can live uh, being a nation where they're they're uh, treated for the character content of their character, not the color of their skin. But it's interesting that uh, social justice and social justice evangelicals will cite King King's speech as if that's profound. You know what's profound is in John thirteen thirty four, which preceded Dr. Martin Luther King by a couple thousand years, mm-hmm. where where Jesus says, "A new commandment I give you that you love one another." Yeah, preach. Okay, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. So Christ is the model. Christ is the model, not some human being. Christ is the model. The gospel already teaches us this. But what's, what's hurting the church right now, Rod, and I mean this with all due respect, what's hurting the church is that we don't know what the gospel is. We don't know what the gospel is. We don't, want the, we don't know what the Bible says. We're not theologians. Uh, listen, if you're a Christian listening to me right now, you're not just a, some potted plant somewhere sitting around waiting to be watered by the church. You need to do some of the watering. Get into the soil of the word. Get into the soil of the word for yourself and bury your nose in the word and start studying it, studying it, studying it. And reading it, reading it, reading it for yourself so that you know what the gospel says. You know, there's more in scripture than Romans 8, 28. <laughs> there's more in scripture than Matthew 7, 1. Okay. There's more in scripture than John three sixteen. There's John 3.17. John 3.17 is pretty scary. Okay? So when, when Rod asks the question, okay, if there's someone in here right now, well, what can I do? Listen, when the George Floyd situation happened, George Floyd was killed May 25th, 2020. Weeks after that, Virgil Walker and I, we would have people come up to us, emailing us or whatever. Maybe you had this as well. So, well, what can I do? White people would come up to us. So, well, what can we do to help black people like you? <laughs> no joke this is reality for us what can we do I'm like well ma'am I'll tell you what you can do answer me this question so I will say well George Floyd was killed May 25th 2020 what were you doing on May 24th whatever you were doing on May 24th the day before George Floyd was killed that's what you need to keep doing whatever you were doing as a Christian on May 24th the day before George Floyd was killed, you need to keep doing what you were doing. Why should George Floyd's death matter to me in terms of changing how I apply the gospel in my interaction with others as God has gifted me? We did an entire episode on the George Floyd situation. And I made a comment in that episode that George Floyd's death matters to me. It, 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 ends, it begins rather and ends, as far as I'm concerned, with the fact that that was a fellow image bearer of God. But so was Derek Chauvin, the police officer. Hello. So what you have here, I think one of the scripture, uh, uh, scriptural applications here, Rod, is as sinners, as sinners who have, by the grace of God, we know this from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, that we have been adopted into God's family by God's grace. Salvation is a monergistic work of God, meaning that that is God only who made that happen. But we have to remind ourselves as sinners who have been forgiven of infinite number of sins that when we see something like a George Floyd situation happen, you can't just have compassion for George Floyd. You got to have compassion for the police officer. So I've, I've said to people often, see, it's easy to be like Jesus until you have to be like Jesus. Yeah. Being, see, it's easy to be like Jesus when you have to have compassion for George Floyd. It's harder to be like Jesus when you also need to have compassion for that police officer. See, each one of us is that police officer. 
Each one of us, it's like David said, I was conceived in sin. <laughs> From the moment this sperm meets the egg. Congenital. We have congenital sin natures. So what should motivate us, bro, is the myriad infinite sins that we have been forgiven of. This is why in the gospel, the gospel teaches that we're compassionate, we're loving, we're sacrificial uh, towards others out of a love for God and what he's done for us. That's my motivation, bro, for coming alongside you. Mm-hmm. So really, it's, it's understanding that justification before we understand the sanctification. Understanding we are, we've been using this phrase, that we stand naked at the foot of the cross. Yes. Yes. Okay? Yes. So before we start, you know, pointing fingers, first of all, we are all sinners saved by grace. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. That produces itself Bingo. in works. Bingo. And what are those works? Those are the 59 one another's. Yes. The scripture. Yes. We start first with the household of God and then with others. And what's the best thing we can do for others? Help get them saved. Help get them saved. Yeah. And then there's other things that go along with that. But but if we reduce, go back to the social gospel, if we reduce our gospel to an economic, racial, social category, that's a cheap worldly love. Right. That's the cheap. That's the cheapest worldly love, actually. Right. That's the cheapest. It costs see, us nothing. It costs us absolutely nothing. See, see, what people don't understand is, see, before Jesus came, there were already people who, before him, was preaching this sort of moralistic kumbaya sort of sort of uh, 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 ethos that you just well treat one another kind. You know, treat one. And, and you're seeing this especially in the media now. You know, all these commercials and everything on television. And I was in my hotel room and and watching a little TV last night and all these commercials, man, are just, they're just, just centered around this whole, uh, you know, this, this sort of almost hippie type of, uh, uh, loving and compassion and everything. But see, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel guys. What the social justice movement does, it strips Christ out of the gospel and reduces it to just, um, just moralism. Satan's just repackaged this. And this is what was going on a hundred years ago. Exactly. Nothing new under the sun, bro. Yeah. It's nothing Just new a little side. different flavor. Mm-hmm. But brother, this has been tremendously helpful, and uh, I think it, it gets us down the road in preparation, uh, not wait, only for this wait, conference. Wait, 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 wait. Are we, are we done? Well, Are we wrapping up? I, I can, we, we can stretch another 10 minutes. You got, you got more words? You guys got 10 minutes? Let's All right, let's do it. You got more questions? I got lots of questions. Go ahead, let's go. <laughs> well, if I, if I can say one more thing. Um, and this may, well, go ahead and ask your question because this may lead in, your question may lead into what I want to say. All right, let's see here. We got a couple of really this good This man. This time is I flying know, by. I know. What would you say is the long-term danger to the church regarding this? Because there, there's plenty of pastors out there, theologically trained. I mean, these are, there, there's even 1689 guys out there that say, I'm not going to lose the gospel, but I just want to add this to it. It's a useful tool. Um, What's the long-term danger with adding worldly wisdom, worldly philosophy, which is really another gospel to the church? Yeah, uh, great question. So I would say that the most pressing, there are many long-term dangers uh, actually, but I think the most pressing danger is what I was saying earlier, that this whole wokeness worldview reduces the gospel to just mere moralism. 
And it's not a moralism that is um, equitable. It's a very subjective, um, compartmentalized, um, intersectional uh, moralism. Um, Has anyone heard the name Ibram X. Kendi? Okay, Ibram X. Kendi is probably the leading uh, liberation theologian out there today. Ibram X. Kendi heads up the... You want to tell in, us what he's written? We might recognize Yeah, so in, in, Ibram X. Kendi is, is probably most noted for his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Okay, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Which, by and, the way, is the only answer to being white, Correct is you have to become an anti-racist. It's not yes. enough to just say, I believe in this, I'm going to be a better person, yes. I'm going to help out. Yes. So that, that, that one of the long-term effects is you will never attain any right. sort of acceptance unless you become an anti-racist. Right. And see, here's the trap of anti-racism. <laughs> this is, I'm laughing because this is, is, is so ridiculous. Even the anti-racist, in terms of how they define anti-racism, you will never measure up white person. But isn't anti-racism racist? Yes, which is why I'm so dogmatic as a Christian and as an apologist, and every Christian in this room is an apologist. This is why I'm so dogmatic about rejecting those terms and using biblical terminology instead, because the world's terms like race, racist and racism, those those can be manipulated to mean whatever they want. Scripture speaks in only two, uh, two behavioral lanes. Mm -hmm. And that this goes for every person in this room. There's only two attitudes I can have towards you biblically. I can either love you or I can hate you. That's scripture. That's the language Jesus talked in. Jesus spoke in terms of, of love and hate. Okay. I can either love you or I can hate you. The only question that remains is how that love or hate manifests itself. Okay. So we have to reject these terms like racism and anti-racism because uh, what, 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 when we, when we, when we buy into those terms, they control the narrative. It allows them to maintain control of the narrative. You mean even when we accept cultural Marxist terms, we then become presuppositional. We yes. agree with the lie. Right. So, for instance, if I if I accept systemic racism as being true, I don't believe in all this other stuff. I believe people are handling it poorly, but I believe in systemic racism. I'm already buying into the lie, and it's yes. anti-gospel. Yes, because I'm treating. Uh, I'm treating individuals as corporate, as corporate guilt right. or corporate innocence. Right. You're treating okay. you're you're buying into the uh, collectivist um, uh, presupposition that is inherent to that worldview. And see, here's the thing, guys. I've been talking a lot about language, and I want to talk some more about that when we're back here in two weeks uh, for the conference. But if you don't take away anything else from what Rod and I have been talking about this morning, take away this. It's all about language. It's all about language. It's all about the narrative. For the purpose of control. I think for it's... Com- for the, right, it's all about language for people the, to make. I mean, this is not about helping an oppressed mm-hmm. people group. 
This is about creating a vacuum and creating control. And there's a lot of uh, unwitting participants, but look, look at look at Venezuela now. Yes. Look at Cuba. Right. Look at North Korea. Right. Um, there's no marches going on there. Because <laughs> they're because they're, they're too hungry to march. That's right. Because there's no food in the grocery stores. But they came in under the guise of we're going to help this oppressed people. And then now right. those people truly are oppressed. Right. And, and again, um, what we have to understand is this. The gospel doesn't teach this. The gospel nowhere. What's that old country song? I'm in Texas. Who sang that song? I never, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Who, who sang that? It's Dolly. Is that Dolly Pardon? You're from Atlanta. You don't know that? I'm, bro, I'm from the crib, bro. <laughs> Well, we like the same music. I, right? I didn't even have grass where I Steve, grew up, Steve. man. <laughs> Rose Garden, I didn't have grass. <laughs> it's all about the language, 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 language. Okay? You have to understand. So Ibram X. Kendi, I mentioned him because I want to I quote him. He, was recently, uh, he recently gave an interview at a, uh, at a church in uh, New York uh, City where Kendi said this. Kendi said, Jesus was, I'm quoting him. Jesus was a revolutionary and the job of a Christian is to revolutionize society. That the, he said that the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. That's liberation theology in a nutshell. Save, I'm still quoting Kendi. Savior theology is a different type of theology. The job of the Christian is to go out and save these individuals who are behaviorally deficient. Unquote. Now that's works righteousness right there. That's not the gospel, folks. That's not the gospel. Okay? I've often said, Jesus Christ didn't come to save society. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Amen. Christ didn't come to save society. He already told the people, listen, if, if I come, this is why the people hated him. They thought, that just like, they thought just like Kendi. They thought Jesus was this revolutionary. Save us from Rome. Who was going to save us from Roman oppression. Jesus didn't, didn't say, utter a word about the Roman system, which he could have overthrown. But what did he say? My kingdom's not of this world. So here you have people like Kendi, other crits, other social justicians, who this is what I mean when I say they're trying to create heaven here on earth. But Peter says in 2 Peter 3.13, he says, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. John MacArthur said recently in a sermon a few months ago, he said, we don't win down here. Mm -hmm. We don't win down here. We don't. Hello? First John 2, this world is passing away. If you know anything about Revelation, you already know. There's going to be a new world. There's going to be a new Jerusalem someday. It's not here. Not only is it not here, we can't bring it about. I mean, think of how non sequitur it is to think about how a sinner can save himself. You can't even save yourself, let alone save society. So understand the language of wokeism. Understand the language of social justice. Understand the language of critical theory. Um, read the material. If you're taking notes from me right now, one fundamental uh, resource that you need to get is the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Race Theory. Get the Oxford Dictionary of Critical Race Theory Um it's a robust uh, resource for uh, terms, vocabulary, including individuals who are key 
to the worldview of, of critical theory. Get a copy, order it. You can get it on Amazon, the Oxford Dictionary Critical Race Theory. It's like a pocket size uh, thing that you can carry around in a, a briefcase or a purse or something like that. But get that. If you don't know where to start, get that. Um, yeah, so, Rod, I'll turn it back over to you, man. I just wanted to get that last word in. No, just re, re, reinforce the importance of learning the language. Leave us with one more thing. You know, we're all learning. Um, you've been studying this for years. I've been watching it go on and trying to understand it more. Um, this body of believers is, is passionate about local missions. And we feel like one way we can help other church members, other believers realize this danger is by helping to put on this, this mm -hmm. conference. So we want to learn about it and we want to serve. Um, like with understanding the genuine as compared to the counterfeit. Yeah. Um, what would be your suggestion about where we ought to spend some time in Scripture to understand better the gospel? <clears throat> I mean, I think we all need oh. to really understand the depths of Christology more. We're in Colossians 3 now, which is a good place. But uh, is, there, is there a particular favorite uh, place that you like to go to just understand really the depths of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Man, that is an amazing question. Wow. That is a... Can you hum a tune while I think about that? <laughs> well, I, I was going to get the organ here because I, I like that, that on your, your that podcast. A, oh, my gosh. That's an amazing, uh, <laughs> that's an amazing, man, where, where do I even, where do I even begin? You, you like Ephesians? You like Romans? I, mean, uh, a... I like Romans 5, 6. Mm -hmm. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, let me take a. Let's let's take a, let's, let's, let's take a anchor ourselves in the word and, this uh, morning before we go into time of fellowship. Romans five six through eight. I think uh, this is a passage that brings me to my knees every time. All right, Romans five six. Sorry, I got a brand new Bible here. These pages, although we turn pages, these pages are kind of are they sticky. Romans five six. And I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard. Romans five six. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died. For the ungodly. Uh, every time I read that passage, my eyes just get stuck on that word ungodly. See, we, we like to think ourselves, we, we, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll consent. We'll say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But we say that so casually. Mm -hmm. We say that so casually that it really doesn't have any impact anymore. It really doesn't. But when you read Romans 5, 6, you're not just a sinner. You're ungodly. Apart from Christ, you're ungodly. You're ungodly. That means that there's nothing in you that reflects the image of God innately in and of yourself. Zero. So, so does it become the height of arrogance and hypocrisy when we point the finger at unregenerate culture or at an unregenerate, an unbelieving person and stand in judgment over them as though we expect them to behave like a believer. Yes. So not only is it, are we, are we denying the grace of God, which purchased us, but it's a practical Arminianism where we're saying, hey, we, we think you need to pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. You, you, you shouldn't be doing, I mean, what do right. we expect? We, right. that's, that was us. We I were love, ungodly. I love how you say that, man. What do we expect? What do we expect? Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, he says that this entire, all of creation has been subjected to corruption. Um, a, a personal life credo of mine is that I'm not surprised when sinners sin. 
<laughs> sinning, sinning is what sinners do. Uh, listen, if if when I sin, I'm not surprised that I sin. I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a regenerate sinner. I'm saved, but I'm still a sinner. There's still that um, uh, remaining sin that's in me that I have to deal with, at, not just every day, every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. You know, I've often said, Rod, that the Bible is both a mirror and a window. Mm-hmm. But it is first a mirror, then a window. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. The Bible is first, a, it's, it's both a mirror and a window, but it's first a mirror for you to look at yourself, to see yourself. Before you use it as a window to look out onto the world and society and everybody else. So if I, I would just leave you with that. The Bible is both a mirror and a window, but it is first a mirror, then a window. The, listen, if we can get in the habit of seeing the word of God and using it as a mirror first to see ourselves, the Holy Spirit would do such a work in us, first of all, by keeping us on our knees, either actually or metaphorically, keep your heart attitude in a posture of humility and continuing repentance so that the Holy Spirit is always dealing with you regardless of what the Holy Spirit is doing or not doing to somebody else. Can you imagine the impact on the church? You, you talked about work from the inside out. Can you imagine on uh, the, the impact that it could have at Metro Bible Church? First, if you've got a bunch of people here who just holding the mirror of the word of God to their face continually. Can you imagine how the impact of that would have once they start looking at their brothers and sisters through the window of the word, then out into the neighborhoods, then out into, I mean, the, the, the impact would be incredible. It'd be absolutely incredible. Well, brother, this has been a good time and uh, looking forward uh, to your sessions at the conference Tell us real quickly what uh, two things you're going to be speaking on in the main session and then in the breakout so we can look forward yeah. to Yeah, so my main session message. Not uh, that they would necessarily come to your breakout instead of mine, <laughs> but just you know, Bro, for other people out we, there. We, we, I might have to, uh, I might have to, <laughs> what I just said, I might have to just apply that to, to Where, myself. Where's the mirror, man? Where's we, the might mirror? Have, we might have to fight over these breakouts. <laughs> So my main uh, session message, let's say that fast, session message is titled, The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. I'm going to be speaking out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and talking about the dividing wall that Christ, uh, through his work, his uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, has torn down. And then my breakout session is titled, The ABCs of CRT the ABCs of CRT. Um, I've put together a multi-slide PowerPoint. I'm going to take you uh, from the history of CRT to talk about what CRT is about. That's the A. I want to talk to you about what the biblical response to CRT is. That's the B. And then the C is I'm going to talk more about why CRT is a threat uh, to the church. Uh, so that's my breakout session, the ABCs of CRT. Oh, that's exciting. Well, let me pray for us. And, uh, Will you come back and join us again? Okay. If you guys will have me, I'll be glad to come back. He, he likes uh, a lot of meat and barbecue and steaks, so he's come to the right state, right? Indeed, I have, bro. I've gotten fat in the two days that I've been here. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
So gracious Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for Daryl Harrison, for Chris Huff, for Virgil Walker, for the ministry of Just Thinking Podcast. And we also thank you for grace to you, for Phil Johnson and the work you're doing there. Father, we're all uh, just clay vessels, but within those clay vessels, you have given us the treasure of the gospel to carry to a lost and dying world. I pray that you would give us courage and a strength and a standard not to be satisfied with anything less than winning souls for the kingdom. But Lord, at the same time, I pray that they would see such the love of Christ in that message, in our actions, in our relationships, that Lord, any atheistic uh, theology or ideology would pale in comparison, would stand as a small adversary to the greatness of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you, and uh, we look forward to continuing the work for which you have chosen us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.